0: Hi, this is Brian Lopiccolo. The following sermon was recorded unplugged from a smartphone in the room because we were unable on that day to record in our normal fashion with the right equipment. We apologize for various noises you'll hear coming from the room during the message. Still, there's something very honest about the raw recording, and I thought it would be best to share it nonetheless. I hope you're encouraged by the message, and thanks for listening.
1: Our Christmas Eve scripture comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, that he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and of a son, then an heir, through God. The word of the Lord.
0: I really love to watch Christmas movies of all types. I love watching Christmas movies and... Maybe at the top of my list, as far as movies you have to see before Christmas Day, you kind of have to get them in culturally. One at the top of my list is Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life uh, from the late 1940s. It's, um, what's interesting about It's a Wonderful Life is that most of, most of the story is not about Christmas at all, most of the story does not take place at Christmas time. It takes place throughout George Bailey's life, decade after decade. Uh, but it's at Christmas time uh, that George finally sees his life clearly. It's at Christmas time that he finally uh, can see his life for what it truly is, from the proper vantage point. In a sense, Christmas time contextualizes his life for him. And my hope is that well, that's what I'd like to try and do today for us is through through a holiday that we celebrate one you know one day out of the year maybe we through the lens of christmas can see all of our lives our entire life from a proper vantage point maybe through christmas we can focus on what's true and what is absolutely necessary so In It's a Wonderful Life. If any of you have seen it, at the end of the movie, it happens to be Christmas time, and all of the townspeople come around George Bailey's side to encourage him. And when they do that, they're singing a Christmas carol. Any of you know what carol it is? Yeah, yeah. So they're singing. The townspeople are singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's what we're going to close our series called Songs of Advent. With Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you're visiting with us today, or for the first time, for the last month, every Sunday, we've been looking at Christian truths that are tucked into Christmas carols that you, most of you, have probably been singing your entire life, Uh, but maybe have never really considered uh, their meaning. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, it's, uh, let's see, I almost said it's a wonderful life. So Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written by Charles Wesley. And if you think Lennon and McCartney and people like that are prolific, Charles Wesley wrote over 6,500 hymns. Now, he wasn't a celebrity and he didn't have to deal with fan mail. So, you know, when you're kind of alone in the 1700s, you can write, 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 pump out hymns and songs. Uh, maybe one of his greatest hymns is this one. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. he published it in 1739, and it was made more popular by the great preacher George Whitefield in one of his publications about 20 years later. And then, this is interesting, a 100 years later, in the 1840s, the German composer Felix Mendelssohn wrote something. And then later in the 1850s, Mendelssohn's piece was adapted by another person, set to the words for "ark," the Herald Angels Sing. So it was over a 100-year process that gave us the version of the carol that we just sang about 20 minutes ago. And I think it's one of Charles Wesley's best. Now, have you ever let the lyrics of a song wash over you without really considering its meaning? For instance, how many times have you sung the the Star-Spangled Banner? before you stop and ask yourself, what am I singing about? I remember being a kid, I had all the syllables memorized, but I hadn't parsed out what the actual words were. I could just recite it and sing it. And then as an adult, I began to say, oh, that's an interesting phrase. I had sung it all my life, but I never considered what those words in the Star Spangled Banner mean. I think hymns are very much that way too, and I think Christmas songs and Christmas carols are very much that way. I don't think Part the herald angels sing is any different. So today I want to focus just primarily on the second stanza of this carol, and let's look closely at one particular line of it. So this is what we sang: Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the Virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead seed. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now Wesley's carol, if you look at all all five verses that we sang earlier, it is packed with Christian doctrine, it is packed packed with references uh, to the Bible. We're just going to focus on one reference today. Found in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, when when we sing, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, it is reminiscent of what uh, Cynthia read for us, found in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Now, to consider what Paul is saying there, let's just go a little bit further back to the verse before it to get some more context, okay? So let's look at verse 3, where Paul had written, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what is he talking about there? We don't have time today to analyze Paul's entire passage. Because it's a big one, and it's a complicated one, and it's an important one. Uh, But I do want to mention this. When he says in the same way, he's referring to the paragraph he had written earlier, in which he was basically saying that God's law, the Torah, the Old Testament, which was not only the ceremonial law that the Jews had to keep, but the moral law that the Bible says is written in our hearts and in our minds naturally, just by nature of being born, that God's law was like a tutor to us, that God's law was like a guardian, was like a steward taking care of us until we came of age to understand a more important thing. Now, in Paul's day, uh, in in some families, uh, Greek or Roman children were practically raised by a guardian or a tutor or a steward. That until they came of age, they couldn't even leave the house without a trusted, respected servant of the household guarding, watching, guiding, teaching them until the appointed time for their maturity. So the apostle Paul here is saying to Christians in Galatia, both Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus, you know God's law. It was like a tutor, a guardian. Guiding you, watching you, babysitting you, training you up until the right time. And he goes on to say, in the same way we also, when we were children. Now when he says when we were children, he's not, he doesn't mean little boys and little girls. He's speaking metaphorically. What he means by saying we were, when we were children was when we were unskilled. When we were spiritually speaking, untaught. More naive, more ignorant, and more childish. When we were children, in the same way also, when we were children, we were, he goes on to say, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I want to mention what that means. What are the elementary principles of the world? Paul is talking about the basic structures of anything. Elementary principles, fundamental things like letters of the alphabet or sounds for spoken language, or the natural elements that make up the physical world that we see. The simple things. The theologian John Calvin interpreted what Paul was saying here about elementary principles as rudiments. You know what training rudiments are? I think we may be able to find a cultural connection here. These are what rudiments are. Think of it this way. So, I'm a, in my former life, I was a musician. So, we think of rudiments as key signatures and the diatonic scale and chord structures. And you have to understand those basics if you're going to be able to play Beethoven one day. If you're going to be able to sing the blues, you need to understand the basic principles of music. Maybe you're a scientist or a mathematician. You have to understand division and addition and subtraction If you're gonna build bridges and design buildings, and you need to know more than that, probably algebra and geometry and trigonometry and things like that, you have to understand those basic principles if you're going to design a bridge, if you're going to build a computer. Some of you are more linguistic. You like like, uh, writing and poetry and reading. Well, you have to understand the basic principles first. You have to understand sounds and syllables and grammar And phonics, if you're ever going to appreciate a novel, or tell a good story, or enjoy poetry. You have to understand the elementary principles of something if you're going to develop and enjoy a full knowledge and understanding of it. If you're a basketball player, you have to understand dribbling. If you're going to compete in the game, if you're a football player, you have to know. So this is what's interesting. The famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, uh, the training camp after his team, the, pa- the Green Bay Packers had lost the Super Bowl. He stood up in front of the team and said, now these are guys who almost won the world championship. And he stood up with, with a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football Football is the elementary principle of the game. You have to start there, or you're not going to get anywhere. So in a sense, Paul says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, here's what he's talking about. That God's law taught us the basic principles of life. But not grammar, not phonics, not, not... musical chords, or dribbling a basketball. Paul is saying this, what God's law has taught us is His righteous standard for humanity, for our lives, for culture and government and art, for worship, that we are to worship Him alone as our creator, that we are to love Him and treasure Him above all things, that we are to love one another. That we are to pursue justice in our lives where we work, in our neighborhood, and in the world. That we are to pursue mercy. Reaching out to bless those who cannot defend themselves or speak for themselves or help themselves. Read the Old Testament. Read uh, the Jewish law and you will see God's standards for you. God's standards for all of us. And Paul is saying the law taught us the basic principles. Of life. But here's the biggest lesson the law taught them, and this is Paul's point. The law teaches you that you can't keep it. That's the most important thing that Paul wanted the Galatians to understand. That you can't keep God's law. Not perfectly, not even close. In the way you think, in the way you speak, in what you do, in how you plan your life. The most fundamental thing the law teaches you is that you can't keep it, not in your heart. Now, I trust at this point you might be getting worried, or frustrated, annoyed, maybe disenfranchised, or pessimistic. Because it's true, you can't keep God's law. I can't. And that's why Christmas is so important. That's why That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we talk about what the angels sang. That's why Charles Wesley wrote about what the angels sang. Because Christmas is that important because you can't keep God's law. Paul goes on to say, but in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Born of woman. Born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So in God's perfect timing in history, who knows why Jesus came when he did? Roman roads, great. The Romans brought much of the civilized world together, great. Nobody really knows why Jesus came when he did. Only God knows. But in the fullness of time, when the time was right, God came into the world. So that we might learn something more than basic principles. Jesus came because it was time, in all of God's wisdom, to say, I am about to teach you something more. So what do we learn? Well, first of all, we learn that Jesus was born of woman, and that's really important. Because for 2,000 years, people have liked to say, he was kind of a human being. He was kind of here. We kind of saw. But Paul says, no, he was born of woman. Not born by normal reproductive uh, uh, exercises. But he's really, really, physiologically, biologically, Mary's son. So he really is, not kind of human, but absolutely human. As Wesley said, veiled in flesh, but Godhead had seen. Hail the incarnate deity. We also learned this, I think. Uh, Well, it says not only was he born of woman, it says Jesus was born under the law. That is remarkable. That the one who created the law, that the one who gave the law as a human being submitted to that law. So Jesus Jesus is not above the law. He did not for a second think that he was above the law. The law he created for us to follow, the law he could not keep, Jesus submitted himself to and he, as a human being, for 30 over 30 years, he kept God's law perfectly. So that in Jesus Christ, God has given us a new representative. Adam was our first representative. If you live and die by Adam, you're considered a lawbreaker, according to the Bible. But if you live and die by Jesus, well now you have a new representative and a perfect representative. Who has kept the law of God for you, in your place, fulfilling God's intentions for all of humanity and for you. That's what it means to say that Jesus submitted himself to God's law. And so Wesley says in his last stanza, in the fifth verse, Adam's likeness now deface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us with thy love. Now here's how Jesus reinstates us. It's by faith. Jesus reinstates us as we trust him by faith, and he reinstates us this way. His heavenly father adopts us. And it says, this is why he came, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now if you're a female, if you're a woman, you're part of that. I don't want you to think that you're slighted. In the ancient cultures in which the Bible was written, only sons could inherit. So it was important for everybody, male and female, to see that by faith in Jesus, everyone becomes an heir of God's salvation, forgiveness, and of his kingdom. Everyone's an heir. And you can't adopt yourself, can you? Earlier, Jonathan was talking to all the kids. And some of them talked about being born, and some of them talked about being adopted. You can't adopt yourself into a family, can you? I mean, you can start tagging along and hanging around with some family that you really like. A lot of us do that, but they have to agree to it. They have to accept you, right? Now, legal adoption, you can't do that yourself either, can you? You have to be adopted. And that's actually, the word adoption has sons in the original New Testament language, it was one word, it was a compound word. It meant to make somebody a son. To make a son out of somebody, and that's what that's what God does when you choose Jesus as your new representative. Is he makes you his heir. He makes you his child. So, in all of this, Paul is, this is why I picked a non-Christian, a non-Christmas passage today, okay? Because Paul here is illustrating why Jesus was such a big gift, why the gift of Christmas is such a revolutionary idea, why it's so precious, because through Jesus' incarnation, and through his crucifixion, and through his resurrection, God became a human being, God became sin for you, and God became life for you, those three events. Through Jesus' incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection, God has made his enemies his friends. And God has made orphans his children. And that's really what Christmas is all about. That's the beauty of this gift, God's son, in a manger. So what do we learn from the Christmas message? I think we learn that grace is the ruling principle of the universe. Grace is greater than law. Now karma is karma is getting what you deserve and we all know what that feels like. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in the context of what Paul is saying, what you don't deserve is a new status as a perfect righteous law-law abider. And that's what that's what Jesus gives you. Lawbreaker to law abider. And he gives you something else. He gives you the irrevocable love of his father. And nothing can change that once you're his son. Nothing can change that once you're God's daughter. So we learn through the Christmas message that this gift from God is his son to make his enemies his friends, to make orphans in the world his sons and daughters. So Christmas announces freedom from the guilt that we have from breaking God's law and the freedom of having a new teacher now. The law is no longer our tutor, kicking us in the pants again and again and again. We have a new teacher. He's our big brother, Jesus. And he says that his form of teaching is light and easy because he's carried the heaviest load himself. So my encouragement to you and to all of us this Christmas is to rejoice in what the angels sang, which was God's reconciling, adoptive love. Let me ask you a question. And think about it today. Think about it this week, okay? What are you in the universe? What are you? I know we've got a bunch of moms and dads and parents and grandparents and siblings and cousins and teachers and administrators and engineers and artists and nurses in the room. But move all that aside. What are you in the universe? According to what the Apostle Paul has said and what you sang about in this Christmas carol, what are you in the universe? In relationship to your Creator, what are you? Orphans, orphans are wards of the state in good circumstances. Orphans are wards of the state. Which means that they are cared for out of obligation, not out of love. Orphans, left alone, are cared for, if at best, because of obligation. But not because of endearing love. And so orphans, they, they grow up not being able to trust people. Not really, not really knowing when it's enough for them to please other people and let them into their lives. Always struggling with doubt. Who am I? Who can I trust? Striving to achieve something, striving to be something, and always wondering, when, when have I achieved enough to be acceptable in somebody's eyes? When, when have I done enough to be the person that I want to be, to be the person that other people want me to be? Is that you? Maybe you have biological parents and a great family, but in God's eyes, in the universe, are you an orphan? And despairing or raging when you don't become the person you want to be. You you fail others, or they fail you. Despairing or raging. And then judging, judging and punishing one another when we fail each other. So just ask yourself, are you in biblical terms, in terms of the true meaning of Christmas, are you an orphan? I can't answer that, but you can. (laughs) We must continue to listen intently to what the angels say about. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to those on whom his favor rests. We must continue to listen intently to what the angels sang about—that's recorded in so many Christmas carols—and we see in Scripture, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's why Jesus came. Um, I think I got ahead of myself with the slides here. Let me say this: remind you of what Paul said. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, sons and daughters know they're loved. Sons and daughters know they're loved, know they're wanted, regardless of how they turn out. If you know you're loved, You even take it for granted, don't you? If you can't make yourself a child of God, you have to let Jesus do that. It's Jesus who makes the adoption process official. And that's why he came. See, I should have showed you this now, not five seconds ago. Born to raise the sons of earth. We sang that in the fourth stanza. Born to give them second birth. That's what being born again means, to be made anew, to be adopted into the family of God by the blood and resurrection of Jesus. So, I'm encouraging you to receive God's gift, Jesus as your representative. Jesus as your big brother, bringing you into God's family forever. Or, maybe you've already thought about all of this. Great. Appreciate it now. Appreciate it today. Appreciate it in a new way. Just what God has given to you in Jesus Christ. So that you can rejoice along with the angels about God's reconciling and adoptive love. So here's how we're going to close. I am going to pray, but we're going to sing. The singing is going to be part of the sermon. And it's really easy because you already know the song. Uh, Considering what we've meditated on, let's sing Hark the Herald Angels song. Sing together, okay? Why don't you all stand up with me? You can turn You can turn the app <laughs> off of the recording. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> not singing on the